15, verse 16 and 24. This is the word of God. A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he has said to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, and because I'm going to the Father, so they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. Surely, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Okay, friends, well, we're going to continue today in our series, the book of John. uh, And we're at the end of chapter 16 in the book of John, which is the part of the book that we encounter before the cross happens. Uh, and Jesus Christ, in this moment before the cross and before his crucifixion and everything that leads up to it, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the cross. And, and, and he's saying that, I'm going to leave you. That's, that, that's what it means in verse 16. A, a little while, and you'll see me no longer. Referring to the cross. And again, again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, it's okay to be confused of all that. The disciples, as we just read, were also confused. It's confusing language. Well, the first, a little while... That's referring to Jesus' death on the cross. Yes, they see him now, but soon he will die and be buried, and they'll see him no longer. However, he continues, after another little while, they will see him again, referring to what? His resurrection from the grave, from the dead. This is the gospel. He has died for our sins, and he's resurrected, bringing us everlasting life as our representative and covenant head. And friends, this is... This is a huge claim. There's a huge claim Jesus is making here in this passage. He's saying that unless you understand and truly grasp this redemption plan, unless you truly grasp what his death and his resurrection is all about, unless you truly accept and allow this gospel truth to be the primary way in which you make sense of the world and the primary way in how you make sense of your life, until you do that, your tears will never make sense. Until you do that, your tears will never make sense. You may speculate of what your sorrows are all about. You might console yourself with many means. And those means, those methods, might get you through the pain. And by the way, there's a lot of truth in secular counseling. I'm I'm all for that. There's truth in that. But if the method you use to get you through the pain is void of the cross... And if it is void of the resurrection, then at best, that's all it'll do. All it'll do is help you get through the pain. But Jesus here is offering something greater. He's saying, look at my sufferings, then look at my resurrection. If this is the paradigm you use to interpret your sorrows through, then you won't just get through it, but even during it, while you're in it, 
You'll have a hope for joy, he says in verse 24, even joy to the fullest. Now, how does the death and resurrection of Christ speak into our sorrows? How does it inform it? Well, let's get to it. There's three things I want to point out from our passage today. One, how to grieve in light of the resurrection. Two, how to grieve when God has become your father. And three, how to claim this hope when we don't deserve it. How to grieve in light of the resurrection, how to grieve when God has become your father, and how to claim this hope when we don't deserve it. Point number one, how to grieve in light of the resurrection. Immediately in this passage, we see Jesus saying something very profound. He's saying that even Christians experience grief. He tells his disciples in verse 20, you, my disciples, you will weep and lament. And then again, he says, you will be sorrowful. So let's go ahead and kill the notion that a Christian is never meant to feel grief. That notion is nowhere in the Bible, and it's birthed not from the Bible, but rather out of a culture of image management. Some of us perhaps came in today with reason to grieve. Perhaps you're emotionally exhausted. Some of you might even be at a point where you think that all is lost. And Jesus speaks here to his disciples at the time, and by inference also to us. Uh, they too, they too, he says, they will be in the same situation that we are in sometimes, hopeless. When will they feel that? Well, when the cross comes. You will weep and lament, Jesus speaks to his disciples back then. When the cross comes, when they will see him no longer at that time, they too will think that all is lost. But yet to them, Jesus can say, their grief will turn into joy. Why? How? Because they have a God who will redeem it. At the end of verse 20, you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When will their sorrow turn into joy? Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. When I rise from the dead, when I'm resurrected, I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take that joy from you. So, here's the question. How does the resurrection of Christ dispel the sorrow that the disciples felt at that time? I mean, I get how it dispels the sorrow of Christ. He died, right? He suffered, he died, and then he was resurrected. That redeemed him, that, that, that dispelled his sorrows because he's now resurrected. But how does the resurrection dispel the grief of his disciples back then? Well, because when you see, when they saw Jesus' resurrected bodies, finally, friends, they got it. They understood. They understood of what God's method of redemption is. They'll understand when they see the resurrected Christ, the grief to joy pattern of redemption. Let's talk about that for a second. What is the grief to, uh, what is the, the grief to joy? What is the sorrow to joy pattern of redemption that we see from the cross and from the resurrection? What exactly is it? Well, disciples will understand um, when they see the resurrected Jesus, that first, God redeems from suffering, not simply by deleting the memory. He redeems you from your suffering, not by simply deleting the memory of the pain. There's this, uh, there's this one really artsy-fartsy movie. Uh, it's probably the only Jim Carrey movie where he played a serious role in. Some of you might know it. It's called Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mind. Great movie, one of my favorites. And the plot of this movie revolves around this company called the Lacuna Company, run by a doctor named Dr. Mearswick. 
Now, if anybody was grieving in the story and would like to forget the event that caused them the grief and therefore be redeemed from the grief, Dr. Mearswick and the Lacuna Company will erase the memories and make you forget all the bad events and all the sad events that you remember. See, what they're selling is happiness and joy by way of deleting the bad memories. But that is not the sorrow to joy pattern of the cross. That is not how Christ redeems. Remember when Doubting Thomas saw the resurrected body of Christ? What did he see? What did he do? He put his hands on Jesus' what? Wounds. Wounds that was caused from where? From the cross. You see, it remained. The cross was not forgotten. And in fact, if you read Revelation chapter 5, verse 6 to 9, as it portrays what heaven will, will look like, in heaven our mouths will not be silent, but will forever sing of the cross. Our ears will never forget, but will forever hear of the cross. And what do we see in heaven? You read chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. What, what do you see in heaven? You see a lamb as if it was slain. The very wounds of Jesus and his resurrected body that doubting Thomas stuck his fingers in, we will see with our own eyes for eternity. And forever we will remember the painful cross. So how was a painful cross, if not deleted from our memories, how will it bring us joy? Because think about what else the resurrection means. Okay? It means that everything Christ claims to be true about the cross is authenticated. It's true. He really did die for your sins. This isn't just some crazy guy making claims about salvation. He actually did redeem you through his blood. He actually did reconcile you through this cross to the Father. This is true. How do you know? Look, he's alive. He's alive. It's all true. It's not a fantasy. It's not a fairy tale. If you believe in the resurrection. The memory of the cross was not erased by the resurrection, but rather it was redeemed. Because now the painful cross wasn't pointless pain anymore. The very thing that revealed God's eternal glory and brought about our eternal redemption was this cross. Don't you dare delete that memory. It's no longer painful, but God's redeeming work has made it precious. You see? The redemption of the, of the cross, the sorrow to joy pattern of the cross isn't by deleting the memory. And you might think, no way. No way. You don't know what's happened to me. You might think. We might think. There is no way that God can redeem me from this one if you just knew what it is I went through. Friends, that's what the disciples thought too at the time. That's exactly what they thought. That's the grief Jesus meant. When I leave you, in other words, when I die, you'll weep, you'll lament, you'll think that all is lost. You'll think that there is no way I can be redeemed from this one. But then, after a little while, you'll see me again, and your sorrows will turn into joy, because finally, you'll get it. You'll get the sorrow to joy pattern of the cross. You'll get the way God redeems his people, not by deletion of the bad memories, but by redeeming the bad memories. What sorrows might you be in today, Christian? What grief derails you? I'm sorry to say that heaven will not be an eternal version of the Lacuna Company. Nor is God the eternal version of Dr. Mearswick, 
who deletes the memories of our pains and sufferings in order to stupefy us into joy. He's not. But I am glad to say that you have a powerful and eternal gracious God who is not in the business of forgetting but is in the business of redeeming. But now you ask, will the redemption be worth it? Do you know what's happened to me? Will the redemption be worth it? What exactly will God do to this specific pain? I don't know exactly what the answer will be. But we're given a picture here uh, of the level of satisfaction of what you'll feel when it happens, but I don't have the information of what exactly or how exactly he'll redeem it or he'll turn it around for his glory and for our good. But you are given, you are promised, the feeling of satisfaction that you'll feel when it does happen. This is where the mother and labor analogy comes in, in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she's no long, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Think about it. What causes joy for the mother at the end of her labor? What, what is it that causes joy for the mother? Mothers, I'm speaking to you right now. If your child is in this room, go ahead and take a look at them. It's okay. No one's going to judge you. Look at them. Or if they're not in this room, go ahead and think about them. And you tell me, was it worth it? Was it worth it? I know your kid might not be the best behaved person in the world, sure. But you can, can you honestly tell me that you tray them just so that the gruesome memory of your labor can be deleted from your memory? You would never do that. Because they're worth it. Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust me. Don't just look at my cross. Look at my resurrection. Look at the greater glory and the greater good that resulted from the pain of the cross. Don't you dare delete that memory. I'm redeeming it. This is the Sartajur pattern of redemption. This is what awaits you, Christian. And it will be worth it. I don't know how or when exactly we'll fully grasp it, but your sorrows will be redeemed and it will turn into joy. Friends, can I be honest? I really didn't want to preach this passage. I didn't. Because I haven't gone through what some of us here might have gone through or what some of us here is currently going through. I'm sure some of you might be looking at me right now and you're saying, what do you know? What do you know about what I've gone through? And you know what? You'd be absolutely right. Some of you here are much older than I am. You've gone through more of life than I have. And therefore, you've experienced perhaps more pain and suffering of categories of that that I, don't, I can't even think about. And you look at me and you say, you're a 32-year-old child. You don't know what suffering is. Don't talk to me about pain. And you know what? You'd be absolutely right. And that's why I didn't want to preach this passage because I haven't gone through what you've gone through and I don't know what it feels like to be in your position right now. But then it dawned on me, I'm not the one saying it. Jesus is. And friends, he has gone through it. And what he went through is eternally worse than what you've experienced or ever will experience. You're not hearing this promise from a 32-year-old kid who hasn't really gone through that much. You're hearing this promise from the one who's experienced the worst 
that this world has to offer. And he's saying, trust me. Trust me. Follow me. Make decisions according to my word, despite of the cost. Be faithful to me. Through whatever grief this world may throw your way, it will be redeemed. I've been through it. And when the resurrected Jesus appeared before them, this is exactly what gave the disciples courage and faith to follow Jesus so boldly, despite of the cost. Peter followed Jesus till the end. He was, as some of you know, crucified for staying faithful and for proclaiming the gospel message. Now you might think, well, that's because that's he's Peter, right? Peter's just naturally faithful. Peter's just a guy who's naturally brave. No, he's not. Do you remember he denied Jesus three times while Jesus was on trial? He was a coward. When did he change? What caused Peter to change? How did he become the person who we read about in the book of Acts, who now speaks boldly and led the church with such conviction, despite all the cost? What changed Peter, the coward, before the cross, to the one we see in the book of Acts? What happened in between the cross and the book of Acts? What happened? The resurrection did. He saw the resurrected Christ. That's what changed him. The confirmation that God is assured in his redemption, despite of the hurt, that's what made him follow Jesus till the bitter end. Or I can say now is redeemed the sweet end. By the way, John, the author of the book we're studying right now, he wasn't always as faithful and courageous for Christ. You know what happened in Gethsemane when Jesus was praying before he was captured? John couldn't even stay awake when Jesus was praying. He fell asleep. And when the soldiers came to capture Jesus, he ran away with other disciples. He wasn't always as faithful. What changed him? What event happened between Gethsemane and the time when he's writing this book that we're reading right now? The resurrection happened. And John ended up being the faithful follower of Christ and was persecuted. He eventually died in exile. But he saw a hope beyond the grief. You know something interesting? In Jesus' day, there were tons of people who claimed to be the Messiah. Oh, a lot of people did. Even today, you hear people saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm Jesus Christ. Or, and, and, and you hear a lot of these people making these claims, and some movements might have happened from it, but every single movement that was led by someone who claimed to be Messiah, or now or then, every single one of them died when? Died when the leader died. When the leader died, the movement died. Except for one. Except for Christianity. This movement actually grew when the leader died. It didn't die down. All of a sudden, the disciples increased exponentially in their vigor for the faith. They actually became much bolder in their proclamation of it. Many of them gave their lives for it. Now, you might say a lot of people become fanatics and a lot of people die for their religion all the time. But you've got to remember, back then, Christianity was not a religion yet. The institutional church was not instituted yet in Jesus' day. The disciples didn't die for their religion. They died for a person. They died for a message. Why? What could make sense of all of this? We can talk about all the sociological speculations if you want, but if you take Scripture out the Word, it's because they saw a resurrected Christ. And when they did, they developed it. They got it. They developed what? They developed a passion to follow Him who has proved His love for them when He died on the cross. And the courage to follow him when he has shown his ability to redeem even the greatest pains when he resurrected into everlasting life. 
do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that Christ has defeated this, his, his, all your sins, all the sins uh, and, and for his people, and now he's resurrected and redeemed? And that's the problem, right? The problem is we often forget of the resurrection. And we forget of God's sorrow to joy pattern of redemption. And we get it gets lost in the middle of the weekly noise. And that that's why I think we don't have joy in our sorrows. We forget. We forget this is meant for a greater redemption and glory and purpose. And that's why we stop following Jesus whenever our next step seems to be costly and sorrowful. So how can we keep the truth of the resurrection in front of our eyes? Let's go to the second point. How to grieve when God has become your father. Let's go to verse 23. It's a confusing verse. Jesus says, in that day, when, 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 do you see the disciples, uh, when the disciples see Jesus resurrect, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Now that's weird. Shouldn't we pray to Jesus? Shouldn't we ask things for Jesus? Why did you say you shall, you'll ask nothing of me? Well, because in this day, the disciples' prayers, our prayers, will be directed also to another person. To who? Verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father... In my name, he will give to you. This is a big deal. Stick with me. He's saying, you will pray directly to the Father. You now, because of my death and resurrection, actually have direct personal relationship with God the Father. See, before this, the disciples only asked Jesus for things. They have not yet asked the Father directly in Jesus' name. That's a new privilege purchased by Christ on the cross and in his resurrection for the disciples. That's what verse 24 means. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. In other words, until now, you've only asked me directly. You've asked nothing of my name to the Father. He's saying, ask. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay, let's connect it to point one. You now, in Christ, we now, in Christ, have direct access to the Father. Okay, because our sins have been forgiven on the cross. And we're no longer sinful, and our holy God can commune with us because of what Christ has done, cleansing us from our sins. We have that privilege now. Friends, if you want to have the redemptive truth of the resurrection nailed deeply in your hearts, if you want the truth of the resurrection to shape your worldview and influence the way you suffer and have give you joy in suffering, then you must go to the Father directly in the name of Jesus. But why? How does directly praying to the Father in the name of Jesus help me remember the resurrection and help me have joy in the midst of suffering? Let's spend some time there. Okay. Here's what a lot of people misunderstand. They think this means this. If I pray to the Father, the Father's going to give me stuff. And when he gives me stuff, that stuff, it's what's going to bring me joy in the midst of my suffering. For example, if I just had a bad breakup, I'll ask the Father for a new car, or better yet, a new girlfriend. In Jesus' name, right? And that car, that girlfriend that I've prayed in Jesus' name, because somehow that makes it holy, uh, is going to make my joy full in the midst of my sorrows. The car and the girlfriend is what's going to make my joy full. Or we think, I'm, I'm sick right now. So you know what? I'll ask the Father for health in Jesus' name. And the Father's going to give me health, and that health is what's going to make me joyful. That health is what's going to deliver me from my sorrow. That's not what Jesus means here. It's not. Come on, guys. We know that's not how it works. Why are we fighting about this? First of all, 
your life experience so far tells us that it's not how it works. How many, come on, how many times have you asked the Father for stuff in Jesus' name, and yet he never gave it to you? How do you make sense of that? Oh, well, that's just because I didn't have enough faith when I prayed for it. I just wasn't righteous enough when I prayed for it. That's why he didn't give it to me. Really? Then how do you, do, how do you explain the acquaintance of yours who you know is living in sin, who you know has no faith in God, who you know has never asked the Father for anything in the name of Jesus, but yet God's given him more stuff than he's given you. How do you make sense of that? We know that's not how it works. Why even? Why is that even a category? One, not only our experience tells us otherwise, the Bible tells us that's not how it works. Jesus has never, in all the four Gospels of the New Testament, teach us that the accumulation of stuff is a source of peace. He actually says the opposite. You can't serve God in money. Paul says the opposite. There's a peace beyond understanding despite of our lack of stuff. Our experience tells us that's not how it works. The Bible tells us that's not how it works. So, what does Jesus mean? How does praying directly to the Father in the name of Jesus give me joy in the midst of understanding? What will I receive in verse 24? This is what he means. He's saying, the second you address God as Father in the name of Jesus, what are you doing there? The second you do that, you're admitting that the resurrection happened. You're admitting that the redemption plan of the cross worked. It's true. He's alive because now I have direct access to God. How so? Because you call him Father. You can't do that if you're still sinful. You can't do that if what Jesus did was all just mumbo-jumbo. You can only do that if what he did was true. And the second you do that, you're admitting that the resurrection happened. Go ahead, Jesus is saying. Go ahead. Personally ask God as Father in my name. The second you do that, the second you have the audacity to lift your eyes unto the heavens and address the Holy God as Father, you've received it. Ask and you'll receive. You've received it. Received what? A reminder of the sorrow to joy pattern of the cross. A reminder of the resurrection. And that's what you need. A reminder of the resurrection. That's what you need to have joy in the midst of your sorrow. Constant reminder of the resurrection, of the sorrow to joy pattern of the cross. That's what you're going to get when you pray directly to the Father in the name of Jesus. Let's get clarity here. How does this actually work? How can simply saying to the Father, uh, uh, Father to God, how can that remind us of the resurrection? Friends, remember the story of the prodigal son. The son, uh, I think is in Luke 15, who decided to leave the father. He's wasted his inheritance, right? And um, he finds himself starving with the pigs. What did the son do after, after he regretted his decision of leaving the father? He came back begging to the father. He came back to the father's house right? Then what did the father do? As soon as the father saw the child, he ran to him, he hugged him, he embraced him, he kissed him, he celebrated him. See, right then and there, the son knew. Knew what? He knew that he'll be okay. See, as soon as the father did that, as soon as the father embraced the child as his son, there's a lot of truth being communicated there by that one act that the son knew to be true. The father doesn't need to spell it out. The father doesn't need to say, I'll provide food from you from here on out. I'll give you shelter from here on out. I'll protect you from here on out. I'll redeem you from here on out. He doesn't need to say all that. 
all that was implied in the fact that the second the father embraced the child, all of that was being communicated. It didn't need to be spelled out. Friends, the fact that God has allowed you to call him father and he's embraced you as his child, there's so much truth there that is being communicated, that is implied. He doesn't really need to spell it out to you, does he? It's implied. Every time you pray and address God with personal pronoun father in the name of Christ, it's implied. It's implied that the cross worked. It's implied that the cross wasn't just pointless suffering. It's implied that your sins are really not forgiven and that you have redemption awaiting for you. He doesn't need to spell it out. Just call him Father. All of that truth is summarized in your direct access to him. And when you do that often, when you continually pray to the Father directly and therefore reminding yourself of the truth of the resurrection and therefore reminding yourself of the sorrow to join redemption plan of the cross, that truth will become more explicit in your heart. And it'll affect you. It'll affect you when sufferings come your way. You might not be in it right now and you think this is not relevant to me. Just give life a few more months. You'll get there. Before that happens, make sure you truly believe in your heart of the power of the resurrection. How? Pray often, directly to the Father, in the name of the Son. When suffering comes, you'll be able to say, there is a resurrection hope after the suffering. That there is, as our hymn said earlier, a joy that exists through all the pain, a rainbow traceable through the rain, a promise that is not vain, of a morning that shall one day tearless be. The next time you grieve, go to the Father in your grief, in the name of the Son. You won't receive freedom from financial difficulties. You won't receive freedom from earthly physical ailments, but you will receive a reminder of his death and his resurrection, that the cross worked, that he's alive, that there is purpose, so grandeur for the suffering of Christ to where when you think back of it, we can refer to it as Good Friday. Because it's good, the pain redeemed me. And it's become your redemption to the glory of the Father. Pray off. You'll be reminded of this. You need to be reminded of this before you enter into a time of suffering. You don't need stuff. You need the power of the resurrection. So, in our last point, I want to point out something else in our passage. There's something important that Jesus tells us, which I believe we have to know, if you want to truly fully rest and trust in this sorrow-to-joy redemptive pattern uh, of, of the cross. Point three, how to claim this hope when we don't deserve it. Think about it. If this promise of future redemption is available to those who have a relationship with the Father through the Son, in other words, you now, you, you're now redeemed eternally because you have a personal relationship with God, you can call him Father, because Christ has forgiven you from your sins on the cross, what does that mean? It means that none of us deserve it. It means that without the Christ first dying on the cross for our sins, we have no right to demand this benefit from God. We don't. It is only through the forgiving work of the Son. Why? Because the sorrow, all this grief, was our doing in the first place. This broken world, death, grief, all the sufferings in it, it's our fault. When we committed treason in Genesis chapter 3, 
when we've reaped the eternal consequence, when we man first disobeyed God in Genesis 3, we've challenged the good rule of a holy God. We've brought upon brokenness, not only in our own hearts, also in our interpersonal relationships, but also upon the canopy in which we live in, which is this world. We've broken it. And by the way, we've continued to sin against him since then. We have. Think about it. Our natural disposition is not to move towards the Father, is not to glorify the Father. Even for the best of us here, even for the most godly person in this room, godliness is still a discipline. It's still something you have to do. It's something we have to put our mind into. It's something we have to muster our strength up to accomplish. You have to be disciplined about it. It's not just something we naturally float toward. Even the most godly and disciplined person in this room has to do that. They have to schedule the time getting the word. That, it's not a natural thing. It's hard unless we confess to God. We've offended Him. We've brought about this grief and suffering. This is our fault upon ourselves. We've offended Him. So what does God do? He didn't leave us to our demise. He didn't leave us to our grief and sorrow. He justly could if He wanted to. What does He do? He reconciled us to Himself. You know, the woman giving birth analogy... It's not actually talking about us. It's talking about Jesus. Okay, remember the phrase, if you've been in our sermons the past few weeks, remember the phrase in the Gospel of John, the hour, what that's about? The hour is the moment of when Christ will die and resurrect and, and, and fulfill our, our, um, our, our salvation for us. That's the hour. Now, John, um, that's how John uses it. Now, it's interesting how Jesus intentionally uses the phrase, the hour, in the woman labor analogy. Let's read verse 21 again. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. You see, her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she's no she no longer remembers the anguish or joy that a human being has been born into the world. Using the term, the hour here is intentional. Jesus is saying, it's, this is about my pain, my cross. That's what's going to bring about your spiritual rebirth. Remember even the language in John in John chapter 3. Jesus used the word language what? For, for salvation. Born again. Your spiritual birth was not the result of your labor. Your spiritual birth was not because you persevered through the pain. It's but because I did, Jesus says. In order for you, who was once God's enemy, who was once an enmity to the king, to be born again, adopted into God's kingdom, now as one of his children, he had to go through unimaginable sufferings, infinitely worse than a woman in labor, that we can be born again. But he did. He endured the hour. He endured the moment so that sinners like us may be born again, glorify the Father, and have a promise of redemption from all our sorrows at the end. This is how you can claim a hope for redemption that you do not deserve. And you will never deserve. And I will never deserve. This is how we can call God Father when we don't deserve it. Do you have this hope? you trust Christ enough where you can say, all my sins are forgiven on the cross? All of it. Not one is left. Not because I deserve it. I've never deserved it. I'm never ever going to deserve it. But because it's through his blood, because of the hour he endured, I can claim a personal relationship with God because of him. And now I have awaiting me a great redemption from all my sorrows. Can you say that? Can you say that? If you can't, be very weary. I'm going to go ahead and say it. If you can't, there should be terror. 
because your sins are still upon yourself. Your sins are still unanswered for, Jesus is saying. Please don't pay for them yourself. Please don't pay for them yourself. Look to the cross. Look at what he's offering you. It's paid. Receive it. Trust him. And if you have received it, then rejoice. Yes, even now, even in the midst of your sorrow, rejoice. Cast your eyes upon the cross, for through his blood you are forgiven. You have a personal, direct relationship with God as your father. And one day he's promised you, you'll see, that this pain is meant for his glory and our good. Will it be worth it? Will it be worth it? Well, for that, you must cast your eyes on the resurrected Christ and see how your father can bring about such redemption, even from the worst sufferings, even from a horrendous event as the cross. At the end, it was worth it. For through it, we are saved and he is glorified. And this joy that now you have when you face life and the sorrows of this world with this resurrected joy and hope and power that you know all will be for his glory and for our good, this joy, this is what's going to gently pick up your feet one step at a time, even when the direction God leads you toward may be costly. This joy is what's going to give you a hidden smile behind all the grief because your body might be dying, but you'll always be alive. Interpret all your sufferings with this worldview, Christian. Do not counsel yourself with anything less profound than the cross. Do not counsel yourself with anything less powerful than the resurrection. Move with this and face all your sufferings with his cross and his resurrection. Pray with me. Father, the busyness of our week and the loud noises that may bring that it may bring about has often hidden and repressed and um, veiled the reality of the cross and the power of the resurrection. Let it not be so. Father, help us and, and, and excite our hearts to come to you directly as our Father. And even now, as I started this prayer with the word Father, we're all confessing to the fact that the cross happened, that the resurrection happened. That was not Bad Friday, it's Good Friday. And that the pain and the suffering uh, that was once here has been turned and flipped on its head and been used to cause the greatest redemption story. And Father, remind us of that truth every time we address you directly as that. We are saved. The cross work, joy, joy has been brought about, about from sufferings. Please, Father, we need your help in this. And Lord, if there's any in this room who are still exploring the gospel who have not yet received you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you work in their hearts, bring them to conversation to anybody here, that they too may know the power of your death and resurrection, that they too may have direct access to you, not because they're any better than anybody else or that we are, but because a gracious Savior, the one who redeems all suffering, has entered into our suffering, has took upon our sorrows upon himself and bringing us joy. And now we can await this joy even in the midst of all of our sufferings, and see how you will redeem it. 
Isten mit